Yeah, do you think anybody noticed the unannounced programming change? No. No. <laughs> Hidden Temple in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 40 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to build that most iconic of RPG set pieces, the dungeon. But first, the party makes a speed run through a dungeon of their own in the Morning Glory campaign, and the Berserker Priest slays in the spirit in the Character Creation Forge. So, cool news for us we have a Q&A up on tribality today which i think puts us in pretty illustrious company uh yeah i mean we're definitely the biggest reach on there <laughs> like, <laughs> like actual game designers and you know quality podcasters <laughs> right so we want to give a shout out to sean for stooping to our level yeah exactly <laughs> so it should be on the front page today i'll put a link in the show notes but in case this is reaching you in the far future tribality.com slash category slash interviews you should be able to find it in there and maybe even read it mm, you know. maybe, but yeah, yeah. Uh... <laughs> all right so we've got other good news we've got our first review of dungeon masters guild material song of ericos a fifth edition ravenloft adventure for a sixth level party by lucas curell from city of brass oh so we're going to do that right now no 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 oh. it's it's coming when next week well we know how to tease it out don't we (laughs) (laughs) we didn't want you to think that we're just asking for you to send us dungeon masters guild material so that i don't know we don't have to pay for it (laughs) suckers yeah exactly (laughs) yeah one thing is it does take some time to read through these things and and song of ericos is like 30 pages Mm -hmm. of content so it, it takes a while to get through these things and we want to review things that we believe in so um we can't review everything we read, and so that means it's taking some time to get ramped up. Right. But for those of you who don't know, we have been soliciting Dungeon Masters Guild material because the reviews that we've seen around aren't necessarily reliable. There's not really a consistent rubric by which they're rated. Yeah, exactly. So while it's nice to have 100 extra feats, we would like to know, are they actual good feats (laughs) or are there just a lot of them? Are they going to break your game? Yeah. Should I even bother with these? (laughs) 99 cents can be a lot. Or, you know, if it's pay what you want, we want to make sure that we're recommending you to pay what it's worth. Right. Right. An actual amount. Yep. So if you've got content for the Dungeon Masters Guild that you've written or that you found that you love and think it deserves some extra attention, feel free. Please drop us a line at totalpartythrill at gmail.com. Or you can shoot it to us on Twitter at TPTCast. All right. So where are we in the Morning Glory campaign? Well... The party has been tasked by the Dragons of Arganesson, the Chamber, to infiltrate the Pit of Five Sorrows, the prison of Tiamat, the evil dragon goddess. You, The, the party had uh, recently arrived there through a portal and were bargaining with the dragons because they needed more information on the Draconic Prophecy. And the dragon said, well, we've got a little task for you. They need uh, non-dragons to infiltrate and then reinforce the wards because, of course, the wards are specifically geared toward preventing dragons from getting inside. Right. So we've talked about this in the in the last few episodes, and we talked about it at length in episode one, uh, but I had put together a very thorough dungeon map for the party, sent it to them the week before the actual session, and then had them plan how they were going to sort of do this reversed heist and break in leave something behind and then break back out so we did some planning poured over all the details and the documentation that we were provided by the chamber and then proceeded to throw that right out the window (laughs) (laughs) basically so you can hear all the planning in last week's episode in this session the party actually ran through the dungeon literally ran through the dungeon yep we hopped we made ourselves small Mm -hmm. got in through a reduced person yep through a reverse bag of holding Mm mm-hmm and then hopped in the uh, hopped back in the bag of holding once we got inside the dungeon and got carried by the monk through basically the whole thing. That's pretty much it. So you had a the party had a few objectives. 
once they were inside the Pit of Five Sorrows. One was to survive because there were some very difficult guardians uh, and Omnimental, which was, well, a very powerful elemental, but with uh, abilities from all four elements. And then an Adamantine Dragonforge. Now, if that sounds like overkill and kind of crazy to you, it's because I took it as an opportunity to build the craziest thing I possibly could because the party at this point is level 15. Yeah, and then you were kind enough to provide that monster manual entry to us. Exactly. So that we could look at it in awe and go, no, we're not fighting it. Right. <laughs> I wanted you guys to be scared and run away. And it worked. Yeah, so our original plan was to form some type of distraction to lure the Guardians away. Mm-hmm. And then we realized that we could just run past the Guardians, maybe. Maybe. And uh, and based on that, we wouldn't have to lure them anywhere. We'd just be that far ahead of them. Right. Uh, we actually provided the PDFs of the monster man- manual entries that I put together for episode one, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Cool. So if you feel like looking at those and see what the party was up against, go ahead and uh, head to episode one and take a look. Now, the party also needed to locate the shrine of Orlanistrix, which was deep inside the dungeon, and then place uh, a scale of that blue dragon, which, according to humanoid size, is basically a shield. And then they also needed to then make their way to the treasure room, locate the manual of the planes, and then use that to create a portal to escape. And then return to the dragons of the chamber and say, we have succeeded, please hand us our reward. Yeah. Hopefully not get eaten. Exactly. So rather than walk carefully and try not to get noticed by the guardians, which had very good senses. And lots of alarms and sort of things to tip them off around the dungeon. Right. You had found the right combination of spells to prevent yourselves from tipping off the alarms immediately. But you knew you didn't have all that long in there. So you all hopped on the monk's back. Uh, Bastion the Warforged Monk, who was also already very fast, but with a few extra enchantments, became blindingly fast. Yeah, yeah. You guys didn't weigh much, and he just sped off on the route that you had already predetermined would probably be the best way. Which is basically directly up the middle. Uh, The only issues we had were the doors were dragon-sized. Right. Extremely difficult to open. (laughs) Right. And we had a labyrinth in between us and our target. Right, which basically was a room with the maze spell cast on it. And your monk, being a properly constructed monk, had dumped intelligence. Yes. (laughs) Fortunately, uh, your bard, Emery, was able to cast Find the Path, which led you directly through the maze. I had not anticipated that, but it was a good use of a poker chip. Yeah, we had planned to go around initially, and so we hadn't really quite figured that piece of it out. And then when we came to it, we cashed in a chip so that we had a solution. (laughs) You also ran up against the Omnimental. It eventually found you. And I'm pretty sure that you then used uh, your, is it Staff of Power, I think? Yes. To throw up a wall of force to keep it at bay for a bit. Yeah, I kind of cornered it for a little while. Right, it it had to go the long way around. Exactly, Yeah. yeah. So it was like, okay, can't get through. It disappears. You guys know the layout. You know it's going around and it's probably going to be here in five or six rounds. Right. So at that point, you decided to split up. Uh, yeah, well, things were going so well <laughs> yeah, of course. that we decided, hey, let's all pursue our own personal objectives inside this massive horde of Tiamat. Well, Lou definitely decided that she was going to pursue her own personal objective. Uh, yeah, the rest of us decided <laughs> we were going to try and get out That's with right. or without her. <laughs> so she, the first time she saw the map, she went, oh, look, Prophetic Observatory. I'm going to go there, even though it wasn't on any of the routes that you needed to traverse in order to achieve your objective and then leave. Yeah, yeah. So she (laughs) hops out of the bag of holding and Mm -hmm. goes, let's see what I can learn about the prophecy. That's exactly what happened. While the monk and the rest of you took the long way around to get to the Shrine of Orlanistrix. Right. Before getting there, you had to make it through the hallway that had a greater zone of truth cast on it. And you had to prove that you were good, right? You had to prove that you believed that the secrets of dragons should remain the domain of dragons, which none of you actually believed because you had spent many, many sessions telling me that you absolutely wanted to learn the secrets of dragons. I mean, that was sort of the whole character (laughs) for Brand. It totally was. (laughs) So, yeah. So, well, through a combination of excellent, excellent lying and rolling and the glibness spell, uh, and unconsciousness. <laughs> Just knock him out. He won't have to lie. The monk was also very bad at lying, yes. So rather than let him trip the alarm by 
screwing up his deception, you guys knocked him unconscious. And that actually seemed to work. You were able to drag him through that zone without any incident. Right. We got to the treasure room, mm-hmm. wherein we proceeded to desperately search for the manual of the planes. <laughs> a task that seemed like it wouldn't take very long until you realized it was a dragon god-sized horde. <laughs> <laughs> Slash library. <laughs> Slash library. And it wasn't really organized right. uh, with the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> you were lucky because you were able to, uh, again, stall the Adamantine Dragon Forge with another well-placed wall of force. Yeah, that was basically uh, the only way that we survived yeah <laughs> which was the point right the the entire point of this dungeon was to test you guys to and to there was no really set way to get through so it was interesting to see you all come up with different uh, ways to get around the challenges that i'd placed in front of you so you finally found the manual of the planes you used it to uh, open up a portal to, uh, I believe you would open it to Irian, which in Eberron is the plane of like goodness and light and angels and, and happy, fun, sun, sunniness. Yeah, being Eberron, it's probably not that great. <laughs> it's probably not a nice place, but <laughs> it seemed like the nicest place we could think of. Well, you opened a portal and then the Omnimental had found you, was bearing down on you, and so all of you jumped right in and you definitely did not end up in Irian. Uh, nope. As usual, <laughs> our plans go awry. You ended up in another cave complex in front of a a man who most of you recognized as one of your patrons, Arath Lennick from long, long, long ago back in Sharn, who was on the city council. Yes. Seems very strange that he would be here in Arganesson or wherever you were at that point in time. It's almost like he was in disguise. What? Yeah, the warlock then takes a look at him and goes, that's not a guy. That's a dragon. We'll find out which one next week. All right, so what are we covering this week? We're talking about building a dungeon. Well, what is a dungeon? It's an excellent question. I think there are a lot of different definitions you could make up, and we had discussed a few of them, and they'd sort of gotten a little too far afield. So for our purposes, for this one episode, a dungeon is a physical location separated from the main story or environment that presents a series of challenges that prevent the party from achieving a defined goal. Nice and broad. (laughs) Think of it as your traditional underground dungeon crawl, Mm -hmm. but also your sort of anything that has story walls around it. Right. Right. That's propelling you in usually one direction, maybe two directions, you know, backwards and forwards. I like to call it the the elegant railroad. Exactly. (laughs) It's it's the railroad that the PCs sign up for knowing they're signing up for the railroad. Yeah. We're going in. We have to get out. Yeah. This is the start. We're heading to the caboose. Exactly. <laughs> we're going to collect whatever is in it, that's, and then we're going right. to work our way back through. Well, obviously, we're going to steal medicine from these Alliance Purple Bellies. Uh, they, well, that's they deserve it. what you do on trains. And then we're going to spend like five episodes trying to fence it. Yeah. So in addition to the traditional underground dungeon, we're also talking about situations like, for example, you could be on a ship uh, trying to navigate out of a dangerous archipelago with... A whirlpool on one side and a horrible sea monster on the on the other and, you know, jagged rocks everywhere. Yep. It could be storming a heavily fortified tower or a cave network or sewer system. Mm-hmm. And dungeon doesn't necessarily mean traditional, you know, where you go put prisoners and torture them either. A lot of times in a fantasy context, it's designed to challenge adventurers who would be attempting to gather some type of valuable good that's deep within it. But it could also be a temple or it could be a shrine or it could be lost ruins from a past age exactly so what are the what's the purpose of a dungeon why do you have these like intricate complexes that are removed from everything else why do they keep happening in games uh tradition (laughs) (laughs) ah yes nostalgia and grognardiness yeah, I mean that's where that's where our hobby came from. It's right? true. It was built as a challenge for the players. So, what's a great way to do that? But to draw a map on it, fill it with loot and strong monsters, and uh, <laughs> when you kill the monsters, you get to take their loot, and then you can go kill bigger and stronger monsters. Do it all over again. Exactly. You know, some of the older modules even would have like a story, well, a little bit of one, and the dungeon would be the climax of the story. Yeah. Like first you'd walk to the dungeon. And then you'd go through the dungeon, and then you'd kill the thing at the center of the dungeon. Right. Story. 
the story is about how you killed some stuff and took their things. That's a, it's a pretty good story. Yeah. It's pretty cool. The other thing a dungeon really does is it separates the party from their resources. You don't have your NPC friends. You can't go into town. It's hard to rest. Yeah, you can't ride on your horse and do your mounted combatant stuff. Because it's all, that's super effective. Yeah. <laughs> you can't fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit. Ow, I bumped my head again. Right, right. Ha, take that, Aarakocra. Yeah. <laughs> you were so overpowered. Yeah, but one thing about this is that it ends up challenging the players, not just their characters. Which is, I think is one of the reasons that even those of us like you and me who can complain about dungeons a lot still have a soft spot in our hearts for them and we enjoy them. We enjoy playing them and building them. Yeah, that's true. I also like to look at a dungeon as an opportunity in a larger campaign because you can do things in them that are really hard to do in a longer, more complicated storyline. So you can use them for plot advancement. They're a great place, obviously, to put your secrets or to stage a big reveal that otherwise just it wouldn't make sense for it not to have come out earlier. But of course, if it's at the bottom of a dungeon, well, the PCs have to get there first in order to figure it out. Yeah. And this is also a great place for plot twists. Mm -hmm. The PCs have been winning a lot recently. They're making their way through this dungeon. This is a great time to throw something at them that's going to completely throw a wrench in their plans. Yeah. One of my favorite things is, you know, you meet the final boss and then it turns out, well, not the final boss. Nope. Or actually a good guy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't need rescuing. Exactly. (laughs) You've now broken the defenses of the dungeon, which allows much worse people to get into this dungeon and get things that were way more powerful than you understood. I think I did that to you guys in Morning Glory. Yeah, I mean, basically every arc. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I'm not very original. Nope. <laughs> and we kept falling for it. It's true. You guys are very original. After. Every time we're like, it can't be that again, it's that again. <laughs> of course it is. But only after like a month, a month removed from looking at the plot, we went, oh, what happened to us? <laughs> of course. But that's that's where we found a lot of character-defining moments, mm-hmm. right, Is is in that plot advancement opportunity that was kind of facilitated by the dungeon. The isolation of a dungeon also provides those unique opportunities that you get from uh, television episodes. For example, the, you know they have a bottle show where everything takes place on a, on a single set. The entire thing is enclosed, so it's much easier to create a session or two where the storyline is very streamlined, where uh, you know all the possible outcomes. You get this sort of respite from the interconnectedness that you always have to be thinking about if you're, for example, in a city or in the wilderness or in a more sandboxy type campaign. Yeah, and that makes it super great for con games as well mm-hmm. because it's great to make a one-shot dungeon. Everyone is kind of on board for, okay, we're at point A, we have to get to point B, and then take that thing somewhere else, right? Yeah, there's no need to come up with names for the tavern keeper. Because there's probably not a whole lot of people you're talking to down there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And if you're talking to them, they're probably important. <laughs> or they're, they're saying, ow. Say, yeah, yeah. Save me. Or, <laughs> Don't kill me. I, a lot of people say that. I, I know. I never listen. Mm. Especially when they're saying it's it in you poor paladins. <laughs> yeah. It's also an opportunity for delayed consequences. I like when I'm running a dungeon... I just don't think about what's going on in the outside world because that's not affecting this right now. Exactly. And you just sort of let the players do what they do. The chips fall where they may. And then once the session is over, as a GM, I can go, okay, what consequences are happening because of all these actions once they start filtering out into the real world? Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's also a great place for moral quandaries (laughs) because you're in a box, literally. So... There's not a whole lot of alternatives. Like you can be in an extreme situation and it's, you know, kill or be killed. Mm-hmm. There's no you don't have to walk away. Right. You don't have to have the opportunity to walk away. Right. How far are these characters willing to go when the only alternative is going to be death? Yeah. There's no one to heal them, there's no one to come along later and and find them. There's no one who's going to retrieve their items. No one else is going to get the root that only grows in this dungeon that will create the healing potion that will save the village they're all going to die if you don't win and no one's probably even going to know where they are when they die yeah or that they died you know (laughs) i love that in a dungeon you can introduce these situations where you don't necessarily know what to do with for example these prisoners you know you free them do you 
walk them out of the dungeon and then take them all the way home? Or do you say, you know, it's probably clear back that way. Uh, Obviously, avoid the carrion crawlers, but you'll probably be fine. Right. Or just come along with us, but stay out of our way and eat some of our rations. And, oh, crap, we might not have enough. Right. Our (laughs) carefully planned. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're, like, (laughs) making survival checks to find lichens that are growing that we can eat and turn into tea, you know. Why do we have a baby? Exactly. (laughs) So let's talk about designing a dungeon. Oh, right. Actually building one? Yeah. Mm, That's kind of important for a DM, huh? I guess so. So the first thing that I try to think of when I know that I'm going to build a dungeon is what's its function? And that's both in the game world and then in the eyes of the PCs, which because it helps really define and determine those player goals when they're dealing with the dungeon. Yeah. So like from a physical perspective, was this thing built as a prison? Mm -hmm. Was it built as a sewer system? Was it just naturally occurring caverns or maybe some combination of them, right? Like they were caverns that dwarves then settled that then got taken over by goblins. Mm -hmm. And in each of those cases, why are the PCs interested in them? And how do the PCs view this location and the uh, these this set of obstacles presented to them? Yeah, why are they going there? Mm-hmm. Right? Are they proving themselves? Are they attempting to retrieve something from it? Is it unknown space that they're trying to explore? Once you've determined that, it really helps you. It, it sort of decides for you the location, you know, where you're going to put it. Yeah, so for this, you always want to think about, and this is one thing that kind of drives me nuts, why aren't low-level dungeons already rated 100 times over? <laughs> right? You mean like uh, easy-to-find tombs in Egypt? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> like, why haven't the low-hanging fruit been picked yet? Maybe they respawn? Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, I think usually it happens if it's in a relatively easy place to get to. It's because a different group of monstrous humanoids has moved in. Mm-hmm. Right? Somebody else has taken up use of the same facility. So there might be a lot of history in that dungeon. Likewise, if it's very remote... Maybe nobody even knows it exists, or no one has the metal to reach it. Right. Or you could just be in an area where there are so many catacombs or just undiscovered places beneath the city, the beneath the metropolis, yeah. that there are just places you could wander that no one happens to have gone. Like, I bet if we made our way into the New York City sewers right now, we could stumble upon some places that no one's been in like a hundred years. Yeah. I Well, I mean, didn't they just find a new tomb in Egypt as well in the Valley of Kings? I think they did. Yeah. So <laughs> and we have like tons of technology to find this stuff and people who are just trying to find it, right? I mean, we don't have locate object uh, yet. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's RFID tagged. Or Bluetooth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then you're going to want to plan the approach that you want the PCs to take when they are figuring out the way to get through this dungeon before you're planning out the the specific layout or like what's inside or who lives there you need to know how you expect the pcs to traverse it is it going to be relatively linear or is it kind of sandboxy i think of this sort of like preparing a session and the party begins at a predetermined point you know the entrance to the dungeon they're presented with obstacles and choices and then their decisions along the way determine the path that they take so you just need to know what kinds of decisions can they make when they're down there Sometimes these are meaningless decisions where left and right, you end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. And and this, this can totally be fun. Think Legend of Zelda, right? You know, like it doesn't really matter if you go left or right at the beginning. One direction is going to lead to a locked door and the other direction is going to lead to a key or like a key card. Well, in my case, one direction is going to lead to me sighing and backtracking. <laughs> and the other is going to lead to me feeling like, hey, I avoided doing this twice. <laughs> Yes. So there are certain kinds of players who really sort of hate this and others totally into it. But I I think if done properly, it it doesn't necessarily need to feel like, oh, this was useless and wasted. Like the going to the left can lead to a series of five chambers that can be, you know, searched through in any order. And one of those has a locked door. And the other way can be another series of six chambers that can be searched through in any order. And in one of those, there is a key. And this can be, I think fun to meticulously plan if you're that kind of gm it you know you just break the dungeon into smaller sections and restrict access and unlike video games you don't have to open every single chest you don't have to break every single barrel Mm -hmm. looking for that one you know advancement critical item that you need to find here i mean you really should be smashing every jar right lift it over your head right smash it on the ground and look for shiny rupees 
You could do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> or you could just kind of hand wave it. You know, it's like, all right, we're just going to search this high and low until we find whatever there is to find here. Right. Like we killed everything or subdued everything or whatever. There's nothing else in here. We could ask you about every single locked cabinet. How about just this is, this is an RPG. We look everywhere. Yeah, we'll make an investigation roll. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, 1d4 hours later, yeah. you find what you're looking yeah. for. You're the GM, so you interpret that to mean what it is. You know they have to find the key. So mm-hmm. maybe it takes them a full day to find that secret hidden compartment that they weren't looking for. Mm-hmm. But in table time, it takes one line of dialogue. Right. I built a dungeon like this, a meticulously crafted dungeon for you guys later on in the campaign that we'll get to eventually. But... I think you you might remember that it, it didn't really matter if you went, for example, left or right. The the interesting part of the dungeon was what was in each room and sort of the order in which you went there and then sort of who opened the door exactly. to each room. Yeah, who got the trap sprung on them, exactly. basically. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you knew that you were, you were eventually going to go to every room. Yep. And there wasn't a really, a really a way to get to, like, room number seven until you went through room number three, four... And then six, and then you had to go back to five and yeah. back to seven. And then the other, the other way to plan is very sandboxy. So I actually prefer to do it this way mm-hmm. because it's faster. But I do this where I basically have ideas for encounters that occur in the dungeon. And I just advance the plot along the dungeon in terms of the encounters. So it's kind of like montage of the dungeon. Here, you and your montages. I love montages. <laughs> I've been tweeting about montages all week. <laughs> I thought it was Montagues, and I was like, oh, Shakespeare Revival. All I right, do like good. Shakespeare, too. Yeah, I was more <laughs> of a Capulet kind of guy. Yeah, 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 I could tell. The sandbox version of a dungeon requires a lot more improvisation and requires you to have some inventive players. Yeah, so typically you want to put the onus back on the players. This is, tell me what you see in this dungeon. Mm-hmm. What kind of things are in this dungeon that you're dealing with, right? And then you insert your encounters on top of that. There aren't really set solutions here it's just sort of presented to the players much like a sandbox campaign as here are a bunch of resources and tools that you could be using here are some obstacles tell me what you do with them yeah it's it's kind of a more abstract approach for yeah. sure but both of these approaches have been used for many many years I, i'm thinking of you know the linear approach is very sort of against the giants you know yeah this you, is your map and yeah. numbered rooms mm-hmm. and encounters listed for each room exactly but the sandbox version, uh, when we started playing Morning Glory in 5th edition, we started off with the Caves of Chaos, which was re-released. And that is very sandboxy, even though the map itself has numbered rooms. You can go to the Hobgoblin Cave, or you can go to the Orc Cave, or the Goblin Cave, or the Cult Cave, in any order that you want. You can leave them anytime. You can go to a different one. And they don't necessarily interact with each other, but, you know... If you are caught at the wrong time near the Hobgoblin Cave, then maybe the ogre finds you, etc. Yeah, Out of the Abyss is kind of like that as well Mm -hmm. as an adventure because it's set in the Underdark, so it's not quite as free, but it's it's got a similar kind of sandboxiness. Yeah, it is. It is a little weird if you're in the Underdark and there isn't a a tunnel spiraling off into like darkness. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Somewhere nearby. Right. So once you've decided what kind of dungeon you're going to build you can actually get into the nitty-gritty of drawing it or planning it out so you're going to figure out your layout how big is it what are the dimensions i as a sort of rule of thumb and shane maybe you disagree think of every three to five rooms is probably going to be a potential combat encounter now that's including rooms like this is a storage closet and this is a hallway and things like that you know you obviously could have things much tighter where every other room there might be monsters in there that could potentially you know you might have to battle with yeah i i think that totally depends on the nature of the dungeon Mm -hmm. right if if your dungeon is actually a fortress then it makes sense to have guards in certain places so a storage closet might be empty but a hallway is rarely going to be empty it's going to have guards passing through on regular schedules you know if you're going through the barracks there's liable to be guards all over the place right the armory is liable to be guarded but if you're going through abandoned temples <laughs> or, you know, sunken shrines, well, I mean, yeah, you could get to a part that's completely uninhabited. So I think well, they're right. likely to be, for example, carrion crawlers or something like that. Well, maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if there's something that's currently living there, right? Mm-hmm. If there's a reason for those things to be there, sure. But maybe there just isn't. Maybe there's just nothing of value in there. 
all that is to learn is the history of this place, right? I would then probably maybe cram the history into a room that has some stuff in it. And then once you defeat it or overcome it, then you can learn the history and just not have the extra room. I mean, maybe. But then again, I mean, if you are doing sort of an expansive well, thing I, where... What if it's a horror type situation, right? Oh, you want to drag it out? the negative mm -hmm. space is more important than the actual encounter. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there's... Yeah. I'll agree with you there. Horror dungeons. Isn't that what they're supposed to be? <laughs> yeah, they should all be horror dungeons. Right. Shouldn't you be terrified to be going in here? <laughs> so one of two ways to determine how big you want to make your dungeon is you can determine the size of it depending on the length of time you want it to take the players to get through. Or you can come up with a size and then use that as a gauge to determine how long it is going to take them to get through it. Yeah, that's always the mega dungeon. It always cracks me up. <laughs> as though bigger is somehow better. Hey, <laughs> the Pit of Five Stars was a quarter mile on each uh, side. True, but it only had like 25 rooms. That's true. So, And you guys were done with it in one session. Yeah, true. <laughs> well, we also bypassed all but six of the rooms. It's true. Most of the rooms you didn't go into. <laughs> so is the construction of this dungeon planned or is it natural? Is everything right angles and well-hewn stonework or is it both it mm -hmm. could have been an, like i said a natural space that has then been modified or it could right. be hastily constructed modifications within a natural setting mm -hmm. or it could just be an entirely virgin cave complex yeah but that's going to also inform what's currently in it mm -hmm. right you're going to have less intelligent monsters in a natural dungeon than you will in something that's been crafted because intelligent creatures are able to use things to their advantage and modify their environment. You also want to think about the internal logic of a dungeon. Things like bathrooms. <laughs> things like a source of water. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be locked in there guarding it for long periods of time, you need something. And by the way, what you have guarding your dungeon should also be informing these types of things. Constructs don't need anything. That's going to make it much harder to enter a dungeon that's protected only by constructs right mm -hmm. right like do they need air does it yeah. need to be an outside supply of ventilation right is there a back door for supplies mm -hmm. right is it really fortified from one side and not the other and in certain kinds of games you don't necessarily need to think about these things a dungeon doesn't necessarily need to make sense if the only purpose for it to exist is for your players to like show up kill a bunch of things get some loot and earn xp yeah, you want to keep your level of detail commensurate to the importance of the dungeon in your story. If it's just a place to stop by, knock over some things, and take something out of it, it doesn't need all that level of detail. If they're going to spend multiple sessions and develop a true story of this dungeon, it needs to feel real. Yeah, what you, then you can start thinking about the lore of the dungeon. Does it have a name? Yeah, exactly. The Tomb, <laughs> the tomb of Horrors <laughs> is so named because many horrors have been wrought there. <laughs> Temple of Elemental Evil. What, hmm, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't think we will need these potions of fire resistance, though. The Pit of Five Sorrows. <laughs> Fun place. Yeah. It's a good time. So let's take the kids. Is your dungeon totally interlocking? Is it every room tessellated? Or is it spread out haphazardly? Did it grow organically? Yeah. And is it completely locked down? Are there portcullises and gates in between every single room or is it just open and sprawling and things can move freely and then part of that lockdown too is what are the intelligent guards how are they treating the mm -hmm. lockdown nature right if you find a dungeon that's completely locked down with portcullises and traps but none of the guardians are there it makes you wonder why what happened here right because this is the point at which you're going to start populating this dungeon that you're creating what exists there because not everything that is there is necessarily living there you can have guards who are maybe there on rotation yeah or automated <laughs> yep i i put golems in the pit of five sorrows exactly i mean if you're a wizard making your tower i don't need to pay them i don't need to feed them you know what doesn't mutiny yeah <laughs> except for your clay golem <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah they have a lot less opinions than those summon demons <laughs> although those summon devils, they got some good ideas. They have ideas. Yeah. They got, they got, they got plans, man. <laughs> they got me a great deal in a house. I'm working an angle here. <laughs> I think they own this tower. <laughs> this will also feed into the way in which your players are supposed to be traversing this dungeon. 
if you have intelligent guards and maybe they can be parlayed with or reasoned with or they need to sleep at some point but if they're automated well none of those things will happen but it's also quite possible that they're just on a, a shift and they make the same motions over and over again and they become very predictable right they can be bypassed using much more rudimentary stealth tactics in addition to guards you could have things that are actually living there inhabitants things like oozes or as you mentioned carrion crawlers <laughs> <laughs> or even entire tribes of humanoids yeah you know the the goblins moved in because it fell into ruin exactly they live on the top level of the dungeon they're terrified of the oozes that live on the second level but you've really got to get past them because they certainly don't want you here yeah and if you think about it if this is still um if you think of it as, as an active dungeon you know somebody is relying on this actively protecting something mm -hmm. Having extra difficulties in the outer reaches or the higher levels of the dungeon, that's great, right? Yeah, that's why not let them live there? One more complication to keep out wandering eyes. Mm -hmm. As long as they're not attempting to get further down, it's good. That's what the oozes are that's for. That's what the oozes are right? for, yeah. <laughs> and you don't have to pay oozes. And the carrion crawlers are there to clean up the mess. That's right. <laughs> or maybe you're like Halaster and you're just like, eh, more the merrier. Yeah. <laughs> But this gives you a way to have complications, mm -hmm. right? Especially if these are intelligent creatures. But also, they could be causing complications for the current guards. Mm -hmm. So maybe the PCs can punch above their weight because the guards are distracted by these other inhabitants. Right. And maybe it gives potential opportunities. Maybe the guards aren't evil. They're looking for some help in dealing with the goblins, and you befriend them. There are all different kinds of ways that this could work out so the sunless citadel from mm -hmm. third edition is one of my all-time favorite modules you and meepo yeah i love meepo he's a iconic character for me in third edition but it's the same concept they had cobbles living in the higher levels and an evil druid deep in the depths stupid twig blights right and Ugh. they were so they're worshiping a dragon <laughs> right while this druid is doing terrible things down in the you know reaches of the underdark so it, it was this amazing thing where you could totally utilize one set of inhabitants against the other mm -hmm. i still think shatter spike sucked that was the dragon that was the weapon. oh the weapon the mm -hmm. weapon yeah i, I mean like it. I, I hope it gets updated for 5e that would be cool i just don't want something that ruins my loot okay then i will you'll <laughs> use it. it okay no no no, no i'll remake it <laughs> okay all right, it's on the list. It's on the list. <laughs> Wait, was Meepo a prisoner? Did you free him in that module? I forget. I think he was like the outcast. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was one of the reasons that he was willing to help. And he was willing to help because he mm -hmm. wanted to get back. At, if you didn't kill him. Right. right yeah. Mm -hmm. He wanted to get back at the leaders who were like kind of dismissing him. Right. So it's a pretty common trope in dungeons is you find prisoners. Sure. And obviously, of course, usually you free them and... Again, do you bring them with you? Do you just release them and say you're on your own? Do you just kill them and save them the trouble of the torture? Right. But maybe they deserve to be there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe out of the goodness of your heart, you free this prisoner and it turns out, oh, right, that guy is wanted in six towns for horrible, horrible things. Yeah. Yeah. The Mad King, despite hiding very powerful and dangerous artifacts in this dungeon, had some good ideas with what to do with the riffraff. <laughs> And, of course, it's easy to uh, make any of these prisoners that the party takes pity on uh, turn coat later. Sure. Maybe it turns out the prisoner was actually the bad wizard mm. who likes to play dress up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just likes to mess with you. you yeah. Know? It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a mind game thing for him. Right. I'm called the all-seeing for a reason. 500 years I've been on this planet. <laughs> I'm going to have a little fun once in a while. <laughs> and then the objective of traversing the dungeon in the first place can actually be a sentient person uh yeah uh liches <laughs> and wizards classic for holding themselves up in dark places or tall places yep. in this is my case. house what exactly. are you doing here get out of my tower <laughs> a warlord inside a, a castle a kidnapped prince uh, maybe who turns out isn't actually kidnapped sure or maybe you're chasing somebody through a dungeon mm -hmm. so when when the party finally encounters it, is it going to want to be found or retrieved? Yeah. Will that person go back with you? <laughs> right. Maybe they've been charmed, or maybe maybe they were here of their own volition to begin with. I mean, maybe that's your plot twist, mm -hmm. is that there's something you don't know about in this dungeon that's now more important than simply finding the person you came here to rescue. Right. Even just something as simple, I, I think the trope is often, so glad you found me. I really appreciate that. 
uh, I've overheard what's going on, and there are way bigger problems. Yeah, uh, we need to destroy this place. Right, so, <laughs> immediately. Uh, we're not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> we're going back. Right. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. We have to go back. <laughs> we were paid to retrieve you. Well, I think it's time for a higher calling. Right. <laughs> this is how you shifted from chaotic to neutral. That's right. Oh, yes. I can't let the world be destroyed. That's where I keep my stuff. Right. <laughs> All right, so what are some of the solutions that you want to think about as you're planning this? Well, you want to know or at least have in mind an expected route that the party is going to take through the dungeon. In a sandbox version, of course, there it's going to be much looser, but you want to have an idea of the things they could potentially do at each point. Yeah, and I love the idea of having a bottleneck or an impasse, something that the players or the, the characters can investigate, recognize they can't get through this, and then they have to search for an alternative. Right. It also, as a GM, gives you a way to manage operating the entire dungeon so you don't have to have everything in play all at once. You just sort of say, okay, I'm, we have this bottleneck, and until they get past this, I don't need to worry about anything on the other end of it. Yeah, that's one thing that always drives me nuts about these very large and elaborate dungeons, especially in fiction. Is like, why is the alarm not reaching any other part of this place? You know, or it's like, and video games are really bad about this. If you run out of the area, the guards just presume whatever they were doing. You just beforehand. go down the stairs, yeah. Yeah, you just safe. Yeah. You, okay. No, no more aggro. We're good, right? Uh, it's nice to have these natural points in the dungeon so that you can not have to reset aggro or refigure out what everyone is doing now mm -hmm. that they've been caught in the early stages. And sometimes those impasses or those bottlenecks create safe zones or resting spots. You know, there's an iron door. We don't have the key to it. But you know what? Nothing's coming through it. Right. As long as we sleep with our back against it. Right. Probably safe. <laughs> and maybe we got the key. Let's not open the door yet. Right. Maybe we right. should take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And especially in the traditional sense, dungeons are a way of restricting resources and playing D&D &D as the resource management game that mm -hmm. kind of underlies all the mechanics. All of your resets on a short rest, resets on a long rest, your spells per day, all of these things are based on the idea that you're fighting multiple encounters, draining your resources over time. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons that dungeons are popular throughout an entire campaign at low, mid, and high levels. Because, you know, once you get more high level, you have all these resources and all these ways to sort of teleport away, rest, um, find allies, summon celestials. Yeah. In the right kind of dungeon, you can't do that. You know, you could leave, but maybe you can't get back in. Right. Once I've built a dungeon, I do like to do a mental walkthrough just to sort of be like, okay, so if I went here, would I be able to then move on to the, the next area? Just to make sure that things make sense, at least in a, on a rudimentary level. Are they going to be able to get through this? Do they currently have or can they find in this dungeon whatever they need to get through this obstacle? Right. I wouldn't necessarily go through and sort of play it through in my head and write everything down. I mean, if you really want to do that, I guess you could. Like the worst possible thing is to realize that they made it all the way to the Lich, but they never got the MacGuffin of plus nine awesomeness and that they needed to defeat it. Yeah, no. Because <laughs> they didn't open that door. Right, yeah. They're stuck in a fight they can't win because they didn't know they needed a thing to win it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And then fit this into your, into your world and your overarching story, right? So think about the repercussions of whatever they do in this dungeon make it what happens inside has to have ripple effects outside but of course one of the fun things about a dungeon is you don't necessarily need to figure out what those are before you plan or run the dungeon yeah let them do what they're going to do and then figure out what happens as a result of those actions mm -hmm. all right i think we should give a shout out to the five room dungeon i'm sure many of you have heard about this we just went through like a half an hour of here's how to plan a dungeon but if you just want to do one very quickly, you can just walk very quickly through these five steps yeah, and exactly. make a dungeon. So first, you have an entrance with a guardian, the bouncer, if you will. Right. Get past it. Exactly. <laughs> you must speak to the uh, invisible swordsman in front of the singing bush. Exactly. <laughs> Don't shoot him. <laughs> the next room is some sort of puzzle, role-playing challenge, whatever it is. Uh, then third, you have a trick or a setback. Some sort of red herring. Exactly. You think you made it. No, you didn't. The next room after that, a big climax. Here's the thing that you get for here's, being here. Here's what you were trying to do here. That's right. The princess is in this castle. <laughs> and then last, and of course, it doesn't necessarily need to be in a different room. It's just the next thing that happens is you get the reward 
or some sort of revelation. Yeah. Um, but Treasure Room is cool too. Yeah, you know? Treasure Room or the Princess is an ogre. Yeah. Oh, that that sucks. With the Treasure Room. But that's nice. Huh? More stuff. Let's go find a bigger and better dungeon. <laughs> All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, that is my even bigger and even better dungeon. That can only mean one thing. It's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sends Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. You can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. And you can email us, if you can't fit it into 140 characters, at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And last but not least, you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we promised you a Berserker Priest. We love the name. Oh, man. It's such a good name. It, I mean, as soon as you say it, right, you have that mental image of the, the holy warrior in the front lines who is just given into her bloodlust. She is in the thick of it, mowing down the foes of her god, or at least her foes in the name of her god. <laughs> <laughs> so this archetype is a frontline warrior who may delay entry into the fray or may drop out a little bit early to you know keep his allies going or... Get, regain control of the battlefield but one way or the other he expects to get his hands dirty in a fight right it was inspired by the uh, second edition kit of the same name yeah and so we ended up going with a not so classic <sighs> barbarian cleric build um, <laughs> obviously but shout out you could totally build this as a barbarian one of my favorites yeah or a bard paladin would actually work too for a little more holy flavor um or a barbarian paladin would work for a little more holy flavor. Um, but since this is traditionally a cleric kit, we want to give the 5e cleric some love. So we're sticking with a cleric build. Yeah. A challenge with this, particularly in 5th edition, is that when you rage, you can't cast spells and you can't maintain concentration on spells you've already cast. But we didn't want this character to feel like it was sometimes a cleric and then sometimes a barbarian, but never really doing both. Yeah, because you would obviously be worse at being a barbarian than a barbarian and worse at being a cleric than a cleric. So we want to find something unique, some niche for it. Fortunately, the 5e cleric has many different domain options that offer you sort of always-on abilities that don't require you to cast a spell. Yeah, so there's basically two types of domains, ones that have potent spell casting and ones that have divine strike. And it's your, kind of your caster-type cleric and your melee cleric all the melee clerics have useful stuff that they can do without casting spells like particularly their channel divinities and divine strike so this is your nature your tempest your trickery your war in addition to that you can prepare your rituals and then spells that you can cast before you're using your rage that don't require you to maintain concentration there aren't a ton of those but we're going to go through those options and then the other trick of rage is that you have to make a melee attack or take damage in order to keep your rage going. Otherwise, it'll end. So we want to find ways to use your bonus action to get in that attack requirement so that you can do other things with your main action if necessary. Right. You might be attacking, but you don't want to lose your rage if, for example, you use your action for channel divinity. Exactly. Can't always guarantee that someone's going to attack you and, and hurt you. Exactly. So there are a couple ways to get that useful bonus action attack. Uh, and again, you could always do two-weapon fighting, mm. but that's kind of a lame approach and doesn't fit the cleric at all. Yeah. So there's the totem barbarian and war domain. because So there's the war domain, which always gets a bonus action attack when it attacks. That's fine. That pairs well with the totem barbarian. But when right, because that's the one barbarian build that where you don't get the bonus action attack. Exactly. The other two barbarian builds, the Battle Rager and the Berserker, do get a bonus action attack. So the Battle Rager gets it with his spiked armor, and the Berserker gets it just when he uses Frenzy, he can make a weapon attack as a bonus action. And which one you choose is really up to flavor. You know, the Battle Rager is traditionally a dwarf, wears spiked armor, tries to hit things with its armor, uh, does some damage on a grapple, and gets that cool Reckless Abandon ability that gives you temp hp whenever you make a reckless attack and you're raging likewise the berserker gets its frenzy which is a full weapon attack so it gets kind of more benefits of your weapon and it gets its mindless rage which is immune to charm and frighten effects while raging 
I love the idea of not being able to stop fighting because you're in a frenzied state and you hurt or kill one of your allies. And then as soon as you come down, you revivify yeah. or heal them and be yeah. like, oh, sorry about that. It's, it's my bad. <laughs> and also, you know who I get. Also, you know, it's just like more cost efficient to heal after battle. <laughs> yeah. Why waste your time in combat? Right. Yeah. So like, I'll fix you later. <laughs> I'm going to go kill stuff. <laughs> yeah. Although if you are going to be a dwarf, a, a barbarian cleric, like battle rager, it seems so iconic. Yeah. So perfect. Right? Yeah. So, what kind of spells would you pick with this build? So you want to look for spells that don't require concentration, but do have a duration, uh, particularly if they would have some effect early in combat or hopefully before combat even starts. Right. You don't have to waste your first round of combat going spell and then rage and I stand here. Right. So things like command and sanctuary at first level. Command, you have to actually see your target first, but that can take one person out of the fight off the beginning. Sanctuary, which keeps you or an ally from being attacked until they make an attack. I love the idea of you cast Sanctuary on yourself and then you're walking around and you say, you know, I am a man of peace. Right. Until I am not. (laughs) (laughs) Let me explode out of the Sanctuary. (laughs) Aid is a cleric standard. It gives you HP for eight hours. Mm -hmm. Requires no concentration. Spiritual weapon uh, also gives you a weapon that fights along you. It competes for action economy, so it's not a great use, but it has some situation. Uh, Warding Bond, I know, is one of your favorite spells at second level. Oh, yeah. So the Cleric's actually the only class that can currently get it, aside from higher level bards uh, in 5e. And I love the hit point economy that it provides. Or you cast it on someone, it lasts for an hour. It doesn't require concentration. When they take damage, they take half damage, and you also take half that damage but when you're raging you've got that resistance and so it's going to be cut down even more it's yeah it's just really nice that you getting angry still at the same time prevents damage to one of your allies yeah exactly (laughs) um at third level animate dead makes a lot of sense if you've got a god who you know is okay (laughs) with that type of necromancy you know with the right kind of praying I think pretty much any of them would be okay with it. Any deity who's in favor of this kind of bloodlust probably <laughs> accepts the argument in favor, I would think. Yeah, although I do like the idea of like a, a, a god of death where the reason that you're out killing is, is to so make you, more you animated death. Right? Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Uh, and then at fourth level, death ward and guardian of faith. So death ward prevents a creature from dying. Always useful. And guardian of faith gives you a nice battlefield control sort of lock down a few squares on the map kind of ability now one of the other cleric domains that we haven't talked about yet is tempest yeah so tempest is what i would recommend as your combat cleric typically the tempest is you think of it as the storm caller kind of cleric Mm -hmm. right and that's what his domain spells really tend towards but you get really cool abilities for wading into melee combat. You get this Wrath of the Storm ability at first level, which uses your reaction to deal thunder or lightning damage when you get hit, which you're not likely to use your reaction for much anyway as a cleric, so that's just cool. And it synergizes really well with a bunch of your abilities that thunder or lightning damage can be triggered with your channel divinity, which allows you to maximize the damage for a thunder or lightning damage roll. Mm-hmm handy on a crit i might add (laughs) (laughs) and then you can also push large creatures up to 10 feet when you deal lightning damage at sixth level yeah keep in mind that you're more likely to crit because you're trying to get as many of these bonus actions as you can yes you're going to be making and you've got extra attack as a barbarian Mm -hmm. so that's one nice thing divine strike at eighth level always will trigger your lightning damage if you would like it to because it allows you to add 1d8 lightning damage or at 14th level 2d8 and then one nice thing that you had mentioned, particularly for dwarves going Tempest, is that you can push these large creatures. And large creatures include things like... Giants. Yep. yep. <laughs> and the places where you find giants, often in the mountains, right? pushing them is a really nice thing to be able to exactly. do. <laughs> and then as a 14th level cleric, you've got 7th level spells. Not the highest... But if you're not going to go all the way to ninth, you may as well stop at seventh. Yeah, agreed. Eighth is like, yeah. Yeah. So how about advancement? Well, your strength wisdom 
and the number of uses of Wrath of the Storm, if you're going to go Tempest, are tied to your Wisdom mod. And, you know, you're going to want your Wisdom as high as possible and your Strength as high as possible. Yeah, because that's going to affect your save DC. And, I mean, Wrath of the Storm actually has a save as well, so that makes sense. Since you're already also a Barbarian, you're going to want to put some points into Constitution, most likely. Which basically means this build only gets four ASIs, so you're probably going to use all of them on stats. Yeah. Maybe you get one, particularly if you can plan on magic items like a belt of giant strength for a dwarf, something like that. Mm-hmm. Gauntlets of ogre power. If if you know, like, I can probably choose an uncommon somewhere in the career of this right. character, maybe I can do, like, a 12 strength. Yeah, maybe you can get away without advancing it. Um, or if you're a variant human, you know, you'll get a feat to start your build. Mm-hmm. So in that case, if you're using a shield, so this build works either way. I would recommend either sword and board, you know, use a shield and, and another weapon, or a two-handed weapon. If you're using a shield, the shield master feat gives you a lot of protection against magic that will bypass your rage resistance. If you're not going totem. Exactly. Yeah. And then the for a two-hander build, Savage Attacker lets you reroll damage dice and choose which total to use, and Great Weapon Fighter is your classic cleave and power attack so when you reduce something to zero make a free attack and minus five to hit for plus 10 damage if you had to choose one i think i'd probably go with great weapon fighter and just use it every time i have advantage uh which should be a lot because you're a barbarian with reckless attack that's right (laughs) (laughs) grappler is also a classic feat especially if you're going for that dwarven giant slayer kind of build because that removes the size restriction on grappling Mm mm-hmm and we didn't really invest in charisma with this build, but it certainly is sort of a, a lead from the front type of martial character. Right. Like martial M-A-R-S-H-A-L. Yep. Uh, so inspiring leader can work really nicely. Yeah, that gives you um, temp HP to your allies at, uh, if you spend 10 minutes before combat to mm-hmm. kind of give them a speech. And then observant is, I mean, great on everything, but your wisdom primary, so... It'll give you a small boost to your wisdom and a plus five to your passive perception. Yeah, and if you happen to roll an odd number for wisdom, it's a great opportunity. Or, or place an oh, odd who, number into your wisdom. I, I suppose that could happen. <laughs> so what's the story of your berserker priest? I think she is a consummate warrior, perhaps the best in her tribe, so begins as a barbarian. And combat is worship. This works well for the War Domain or, I think, Tempest. And, you know, her sword, two-handed sword, I think, her sword sings or seems to sing in combat. You know, it, it's... If she weren't so focused on being a barbarian, she would have been a bard. Uh, but she's not, re- she's not really devout. She, like I said, worships through the act of combat. But it is through these daily devotionals out on the battlefield that she becomes she gains the attention of her god right the special attention she becomes chosen and and these uh, clerical abilities begin to manifest on the battlefield she doesn't even necessarily know what's going on Hmm. like what is happening yeah she takes levels in cleric without knowing it okay okay she manifests acts of faith and miracles on the battlefield i would go the opposite way i would start i would start as a priest Mm mm-hmm in a tribe or a society, I'm thinking like kind of a Viking-like society mm-hmm. where priests are sort of taken as children and taught the ways of the god of thunder or the god of lightning. Mm. And then once the priest comes of age, they are sent out along with the raiding parties or whatever, and they see combat for the first time, and they're mocked by the tribe <laughs> because they are not capable of fighting as viciously and as effectively as the barbarian warriors of the tribe and it's while out on these raids that she adopts that fighting style so it's not until she kind of returns she's kind of fully integrated herself into her clan or her tribe that she then kind of turns back to a holy element of it i like that direction here i'm gonna throw out one more missionary of a very civilized god out to convert to the heathens oh i love that that's such a good idea <laughs> that's basically the plot of vikings <laughs> and then gets converted to that's the, the plot of vikings gods, right? <laughs> <laughs> so much better <laughs> all right if you want to support the show the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on itunes and if you're willing to help us out we'll read your five-star review on the air 
You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And now you can also find us on Google Play, which does not have a review system. <laughs> so it is of <laughs> limited value. But if you are on Android and hate iTunes, at some point, Google Play will be probably a great competitor. That's right. We're there for you. Exactly. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We will actually be talking about the Deadlands Weird West campaign setting, which we had planned for this episode, but we decided to move it. What about the character creation forge? We will be building the two-fisted archaeologists. Whip in one hand, a hand crossbow in the other. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for episode 40 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.